Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for March 29th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast focusing on appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. This week, as the U.S. Supreme Court grapples once again, and for the second time in as many terms, with claims of extreme partisan gerrymandering, California watches from something of a unique vantage. Eleven years ago, voters in our state narrowly passed a ballot measure designed to remove politics altogether from the election map drawing process. At least, that measure prescribed as to state races. But two years later, by a wider margin, the nonpartisan approach was extended to congressional maps, and so a new independent map-drawing commission was created. One, both by its composition and expressed directive, sought to construct electoral districts in the state not drawn to benefit or disadvantage one or the other political party, but instead based on partisan-neutral factors, like population, natural geographic boundaries, and pre-existing dividing lines, like those bordering counties or cities. Compactness, or the aim to avoid districts that resemble reptiles, is another factor. The California Citizens Redistricting Commission comprises 14 members selected from the community and arrayed in something of a separation of powers type design. Five come from the largest political party in the state, currently Democrats. Five come from the second largest party, Republicans at the moment, and four are independent. For maps to be approved, a majority of each of those groups must assent, plus maps are put to public referendum and public input is solicited throughout the process. So last term, when the Supreme Court heard a leading political gerrymandering case from Wisconsin, our guests on the show today submitted an amicus brief on behalf of California's commission, essentially to point out that map drawing can be nonpartisan. It's been one hang-up keeping the court out of these disputes over the past few decades, the idea that elections and election maps are inherently and unavoidably political and so pretty difficult to police with clean legal standards. And you could forgive the high court for thinking as much. The electoral maps that they've seen, including the two that were at the center of oral argument this week, have pretty transparently been drawn by majority parties seeking to, as much as possible, increase their majority while diminishing the power of their political opponents. Maps from the purple state of North Carolina at issue in one of this week's appeals were explicitly drawn to create 10 safe Republican seats out of the state's 13-member congressional cohort. A North Carolina assemblyman specifically said the 10-3 map was settled on because, try as they might, the North Carolina Republican Party just couldn't quite find a map that create 11 safe GOP seats. And Maryland's Democratic governor, Martin O'Malley, was just as unequivocal about his partisan motivation to rearrange Maryland's 6th congressional district along a Republican stronghold that, surprise, flipped Democratic after new maps took effect and has stayed that way. So these explicit and maximal partisan gerrymanders may give the court its last best chance to counteract this phenomenon that many view as pretty democracy deranging. And our guests, Brian Sutherland and Ben Flegel, both from Reed Smith LLP, are here to help me unpack these appeals, this week's oral arguments, and explain just how California's independent nonpartisan system works. We'll also touch on whether California's example, a gerrymandering fix achieved without court intervention, to any extent bolsters the oft-repeated argument voiced most clearly this week by Justice Gorsuch, the courts ought to let political branches of government handle this problem. We'll hear from Brian and Ben in just one moment, but first, let me remind you of a couple of things. First, as you are likely well aware by now, The Daily Journal is a great source for California CLE credit, and this podcast is no exception if you are listening, and if you keep listening to the end of the show, at that point you can go to our site at dailyjournal.com, find this podcast, 
There should be a link there to a short true-false test you can take, and after doing so and tendering a nominal and very competitive fee, one hour of California CLE credit can be yours. We greatly appreciate folks that avail themselves of that opportunity because it helps us continue to bring this podcast to you outside of our usual paywall. Also, speaking of, we do hope you have found this podcast in various different media streaming avenues that it's available, principally the podcast app. Search for it there by typing in Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal should get you there too. Finding us there and subscribing, rating us, reviewing us is all very helpful. Helps other folks find the show and helps us know what we could do better. Okay, without any further preamble, this week's guests authored an amicus brief in last Supreme Court term's primary partisan gerrymandering appeal, Gill v. Whitford, in which case, as you're likely familiar, the court punted on the core constitutional question before it whether partisan gerrymandering is a constitutional violation, and if so, just how partisan it has to be to reach the constitutional pale. I should make clear that neither Brian nor Ben are representing any parties or Amici in the cases before the court this week, but their arguments from last term and the California Redistricting Commission's example certainly remain just as relevant. First, let me welcome in Brian Sutherland, partner in Reed Smith, San Francisco, and New York offices. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. And also Ben Flegel, counsel in the Los Angeles office. Ben, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. The Supreme Court, once again this week, is confronted with the always vexing political gerrymandering question, um, potentially for the last time, if the court decides this is just too thorny of a political thicket to, to jump into. Um, I think it's fair to say that one main reason why the court has been so loath to referee these sorts of disputes of you know a variety of reasons, one being that the court, or at least a good number of justices, have thought that there's really kind of no other way no non-political way to do electoral map drawing, that the electoral process is inherently a pretty political thing. And and so the electoral maps being a part of that process are also going to be politically tinged. Um, you have written in an amicus brief for the Gilvey-Whitford partisan gerrymandering case last year that California provides something of a counterexample to that worry that um, – the state um, and its uh, Citizens Redistricting Commission, its independent nonpartisan commission, provides some evidence that there is a, a non-political way to do this. So let's get into into that process in, in the commission. Um, until 2008, legislators in the state house drew the maps, which, to put it sort of more cynically, would mean the, the majority party drew the maps. But in 2008, Proposition 11 was passed by a ballot measure. Um, ben, tell me a bit about Prop 11. Um, sort of how it came to be and, and what it provided for. I mean, California is a, is a somewhat atypical situation in when we tip, when we talk about gerrymandering maps. Um, people call the pre-2008 maps a kind of bipartisan gerrymandering where they were drawn to preserve each party's seats. So I think the one of the stunning stats from that period was that in the prior 255 elections, there was only one seat that had changed parties. And so all where in this uh, discussion, we typically talk about the majority party drawing maps to exclude the minority party. Here, there was a tend towards um, preservation of the incumbent and the incumbency party within an individual district. And so in California, we have the ability to amend the Constitution through the proposition process, which a lot of people are familiar with. And um, a lot of the good government groups and a bunch of other groups banded together and put on this 
uh, ballot initiative process a way to get the districts to be drawn outside of the legislature, so basically by people who don't benefit from the system. Not to get too much into details, uh, because the selection process is very complicated and designed that way to keep partisans out of the process. There's a flow of applications that allows citizens to both apply and be selected and create a commission that is made up of um, citizens who have voted Democratic in the past elections, citizens that have voted Republican in the past elections, and then citizens who don't have a party. And together, this uh, commission will work together here in the community and create the new maps. In 2011, the uh, process was extended to federal congressional districts. To present something of a, another cynical point of view, if someone were to say, okay, that sounds good, but what it also sounds like is uh, one group of political actors who previously had the control of map drawing powers, um, you know, the legislature, they no longer do. It's passed to this other group of folks who presumably they themselves have political opinions, you know, if they're not politicians. Um, I guess what's sort of the assurance that it truly becomes by virtue of that transfer uh, something of a nonpartisan process? What the citizens of the state wanted to do is try to get the partisan and political motivation of drawing these districts out of the process. And so, you know, what I talked about before was the way these individuals are selected. Um, they also are barred from holding political office after they serve. And per people who donate in excess of a certain amount, I believe it's $2,000, to a specific candidate or party. Don't hold me to the details of this, but there are also regulations on who can uh, um, participate. There, the parties have strikes if they want to use them. So there is, this is the process of how they are selected. But the statute and the, you know, the revised constitution sets forth criteria that they have to use. So it's not just a different group of individuals drawing the map, the key part of this ballot initiative and what is now the rules that guide the redistricting commission is what they are allowed to consider and the order that they're required to consider them. So there are six different criteria. Well, we can go through them all now or later, but the rules are that they have to use these criteria in this order of significance and that they are barred from considering the uh, incumbency or the political outcome of their decisions. Mm -hmm. And so when you take out from the process thoughts about what the ultimate effect of the district drawing will be, that's supposed to remove the, the politics from the process. I mean, you know, it's, it's somewhat tautological in a way where what you're saying is in order to get the politics out of the process is to just bar the group from drawing the districts from considering politics. And it sounds rudimentary, and in some respects it is, but, you know, I'd posit that it works. I think that um, that statement that the commission is, is barred from considering um, partisanship and political factors is actually probably broader than folks might be thinking about as they picture it. So not only that you know the commission cannot say uh, disadvantage one political party, as is often the case in the partisan gerrymandering cases that get before the Supreme Court. That sounds good. You don't want to penalize voters based on their political view, but also sort of the sort of benign considerations, like say making the state 
more politically balanced, getting the congressional districts to be more even, having them be competitive. Those are also political considerations, right? And so those are also forbidden in the process, uh, Ben? Those are effects of the process. And I think that is key, especially when we're talking about um, what, what kind of legal restrictions the Supreme Court could impose, because there are a number of consequential effects, as there are with any system, obviously. And so, for example, competitiveness is a key one. Since they began using the Citizen Redistricting Committee's districts, the competitiveness of these California uh, districts went up. And competitiveness, as I understand it, typically means that the races are closer. So the winning and losing party, uh, the winning and losing candidate are getting between 45 and 55% of the vote. But that is not a goal of the commission. That is not a goal of the rule. The goal is to consider certain factors and not other when drawing the districts. And I, I get, I, uh, I do take your point seriously that um, when you impose, you're, you're basically imposing certain criteria for drawing a district instead of others. But that is actually the key to it. The key is that you're imposing certain nonpartisan criteria for drawing districts instead of solely using partisan criteria. And there's a, there's a merit to it also because the criteria are ones that you want to see in congressional districts. So the first one, I'm not going to list them all, but the first one is population equality. That's that each district have um, a similar number of people. And there's the second one has to do with compliance with the Voting Rights Act and uh, minority power within a district. But as you get down the list, there are some about geographic compactness, which is to avoid those funny-looking districts that reach across the state into other uh, neighborhoods and jurisdictions to grab certain partisan votes. It's to make sure that people who live in similar areas, who have similar interests, similar economic interests, similar um, representational interests, that they are voting for the same person. And do they have? does this have political consequences? Of course it has political consequences. This is this is a political process, but the key is that the political consequences are not what guide the map drawing. There are other criteria that are supposed to benefit the people and give the people in these districts a voice. And Brian, I, I want to make clear that the point of the brief was not that the Constitution requires each state to use the same criteria that the California Redistricting Commission uses. Uh, the idea was that these neutral redistricting principles really do exist. So that if a federal court finds itself in a position where it needs to apply principles other than naked partisanship, it can do that. And the, the redistricting commission is an example of that process in action. And we laid out that history and the principles that Ben is talking about so that the court could see that if it is called on or federal courts are called on to draw these lines, as they've done in other cases, uh, they'll be able to do that. I mean, the court is obviously we keep talking about when these cases come up has not said that it's uh, constitutionally impermissible to consider politics in drawing maps. Um, but uh, in terms of the things that that are beyond the constitutional pale at this point when it comes to map drawing, really, there are only a couple, right, Brian? We have generally um, the districts have to be pretty comparable in size and also based on the Voting Rights Act, um, what are exactly the requirements under that law that uh, that race can't really 
I think, predominantly factor into to the drawing of maps? I guess what, what's on the books at the moment? Well, you, I think you've identified the two of them, Baker versus Carr, which says there has to be the one person, one vote principle, which is an equal protection uh, protection. And also that the Voting Rights Act uh, bars discrimination. And one way in which a state might discriminate against minorities is by uh, drawing districts so as to ensure that they don't have as much power as they might otherwise have. And that's the principle that ought to apply directly here. If a court can determine that legislators have diluted the voting power of minorities, then why can't it do it for political parties? And so in this new category of cases, which is the partisan gerrymandering cases, we would say that there is an equal protection claim, and you can evaluate it in much the same way as you've evaluated claims under the uh, Voting Rights Act. Um, but as, as we've seen, courts have really struggled with that because unlike uh, your racial identity, uh, for one, your, your political identity can shift over time, at least in theory. Uh, one of the points the political science professors uh, that we represented at Reed Smith made in, in their brief was that political identity is pretty stable so that when map makers are drawing maps, they, they will be able to uh, crack and pack districts, meaning put all of the Democrats in one district or all of the Republicans in one district so that they can uh, predict and, and, and manipulate electoral outcomes. One other thing that uh, I feel like it's useful to get on the table here at, at the outset is the Constitution also we could all agree, and I think the court kept um, getting this out of the attorneys at oral argument. Um, there's no proportional representation principle in the Constitution, um, even though a lot of these claims do kind of sound like the complaint is over maps that do not reflect the electorate. And so I guess um, that seems to be a sort of a, a bit of a tension in these cases. But but clearly, Brian, there's there's no constitutional requirement for a, a proportional representation in, in uh, Congress or state houses, right? Uh, as of today, <laughs> that's true. One of the most fascinating things about Justice Kavanaugh's questions was that most of them tied back to the idea of proportional representation. And he asked, the, the lawyers for the parties again and again, what's wrong with proportional representation to the point where uh, you begin to ask yourself whether he was genuinely interested in saying that a deviation from proportional representation could really be a theory. But you're right that cases so far have held, and then Justice Kavanaugh came back to this point at the very end, uh, that there is no constitutional guarantee of proportional representation, which I think makes sense. Uh, given that people uh, or, or with certain political identities don't don't live uh, are not evenly distributed with throughout the, uh, the state so that if in light of that fact you're not going to have proportional representation in, in any system in which you have districts right. so in other words uh, if you have districts you're not going to have proportional representation and, and no one has ever said you can't have districts right so you know just natural sorting of folks if members of one political party tend to congregate around urban areas and rural areas are more populated with folks in another party and those rural areas are larger than, you know, been under the California's commission drawing based on those nonpartisan political, uh, non-political factors. You can still have maps that end up not being all that close or that are not exactly um, the same as the partisan makeup of the state, right? Yeah. I mean, this is not a perfect process. And there's a 
you know, one of the trends in the discussions here and in the arguments is how much science and algorithms are being used. But even there, we're talking about trying to create districts that are representative of people at the core. And, and how do we do that? And what taking out the politic motivations from that and putting these other nonpartisan motivations does is it allows the people to select what other criteria should be considered besides preserving incumbency. So there's, I don't think anybody is saying that there is a right way to do this and that there is a map that will be perfect because although, uh, as Brian said, a political identity is stable, you know, who people vote for can change depending on circumstances. And so it's not necessarily to predict who is going to vote for what and make sure that they, in the next election cycle, their votes will be proportional to the votes in the last cycle. I mean, that doesn't quite make sense because it's, it's very hard to do. This is a difficult process, and nobody's trying to say that there's an easy solution. What the example of the Citizens Redistricting Committee shows is that you can consider other things and that you can require other things be considered. Now, what California did in the ballot initiative process is it selected the things that the people of California wanted to be considered when the districts are drawn. And there's, uh, like I said, there's six of them. Other states have taken other action. Florida has similar criteria, but the key with with most of these, as far as I know, these redistricting uh, reforms is that partisanship and preserving incumbency is not one of them under the theory that, that what that benefits is the politicians themselves and it removes from the people the ability to to remove people they've elected if they so choose. And so the, the key here is, as I've been uh, suggesting, is we're not looking for an outcome that matches some predetermined theory of what the state should look like or what the people who the state elects should look like. It's that when the districts are drawn, there are criteria that are applied that are fair and fairly applied throughout. And that if that affects the election in one way or another, that's something we can look at. And you're, you can be sure that these political scientists have studied these. They've looked at how California's rules have affected competitiveness, how they've affected um, the partisan makeup of the districts, and of course they affect them. The question is, are the districts drawn in a way that preserve other interests than those of the people who benefit from them? Yeah, I mean, that seems to be a, a different and uh, importantly distinct uh, definition of sort of what a fair map is than at argument the idea that fair maps um, are fair if they pretty nearly end up creating a, a group of legislators that reflect the partisan makeup of a, a given state. Um, that's why it seemed like just as we're trying to say, okay, is, is this what you're asking for? Uh, basically a proportional representation system. Um, but you're saying that you know, this is a another definition of fair that does not invoke that term that you know folks generally agree is not part of the the constitution right ben yeah i think that's a uh, a fair description i mean people in the world have political opinions they have political affiliations um unless you're going to have computers draw up every district 
it's going to be very difficult to remove that. But at a minimum, if it's the interest of the people to remove the, that political influence on the districts, the people can require that they not be considered, and they can bar that from consideration. Now, I've seen reports that suggest certain parties might have benefited more from the last map drawing, or certain um, districts might have become less, uh, less competitive and more districts have become more competitive. And that, that's not my area, the political science of it. Um, but my understanding is that if, if the way the districts are drawn is such that the partisan makeup of the districts is not considered, then as these districts are drawn and redrawn decades to decades, you're going to get a system that is either more representative or at least feels to the people in it that they have some control over the district. So even if a, one party is benefiting more from a certain set of maps, for the studies here say to the extent that happened last time, it was a negligible difference and still very close in terms of uh, balance. The competitiveness of the districts allows people to change who they vote for and change the political makeup of their state and ultimately change the way the state want uh, with the way they want the state to go. And I don't think that is a benefit to either party at the end of the day. That's something that is uh, at least the theory is that it gives the citizens of the state more power to helm the way the state is going than they had before. I mean, overall the idea and I gather that it seems folks on both sides of the political aisle seem at this point pretty supportive of the way California goes about in a nonpartisan way drawing um, its congressional districts. Um, so it's sort of interesting to look back and see that you know that initial proposition, Prop 11 in 2008, was just barely passed uh, by um, like less than a percentage point or about a percentage point. Then the proposition two years later was passed um, with a, a wider margin. Um, it almost seems like a bit of fortunate electoral um, maybe timing or just a, a good campaign that got California into this position because it always seems like kind of the pernicious catch-22 and, and partisan gerrymandering is that the thing that makes it bad that you know the party in power at any given time can keep themselves in power by using um, politically imbalanced maps is also the thing that makes it unlikely to ever change because the party in power is seems, you know, just by human nature, unlikely to sort of unilaterally disarm. Um, anyway, it, it seems like since then, um, the, the the effects have been positive. And overall, you know, Ben, would you say that the, the results have been positive based on how the, the commission has performed in the last decade? Well, if you ask me, I would say yes. Um, I'm obviously a booster. But the true answer is it depends on your criteria of what a positive outcome is. And I think, you know, that gets back to the same thing we keep talking about. What do we want to do with our districts? How do we want our politicians elected? And what criteria goes into basically uh, setting the rules of the game? You know, those are the larger questions. The reason I'm a booster here is that when fairness and competitiveness of districts are prioritized, it gives voters more power to select their representatives. And it gives a greater voice to the minority, and it gives a greater, it makes people feel in control of the politics in their state. And the feedback to the CRC's um, last 
districts has been very favorable. They went around, I can't remember the number, but they went to jurisdictions all over the state, um, heard written submissions, they heard people speak, and they considered all positions, as I understand it, and they came up with these districts. And so to the extent that they were, uh, people have issues with them, I, mean, I think they were challenged when they were first uh, set forth. Those challenges were eventually withdrawn, and the people's favorability of the committee, at least after the districts were drawn, was uh, two-to-one favorable. So people just felt that what the committee was doing was good work, and they felt res- responded to and heard. It's a huge success when you compare it with what happened in North Carolina. And there's a huge difference between deliberately maximizing partisan advantage and making a good faith attempt to follow other principles. When you have the commission's process, and unless it's a total sham, and it's not that, if if they're trying to follow the, the principles, even if they don't necessarily succeed, they're still going to produce a map that's far better than the map that a legislator that is trying to maximize partisan advantage will produce. But I, I think that's one easy way to look at it. There's just going to be a big difference whenever you have something like the commission as compared with someone else who is trying to destroy the other political party. Sure. Maybe we could turn to, to those maps at issue specifically in the cases argued this week. You mentioned, Brian, the North Carolina map um, there. And also in Maryland, I mean, the partisan intent is explicit and you know pretty intense. It is on the record that in North Carolina, the goal was to create, you know, North Carolina is a fairly purple state. The electorate's pretty 50-50. The goal there was to create 10 Republican congressional districts and only three Democratic ones. And that was the goal, it was said, because it was impossible. Maps could not be found to create uh, 11 Republican districts and two Democratic. Um, then in Maryland, also the partisan intent was pretty explicit. The governor, the Democratic one at the time, Martin O'Malley, had sort of made it clear he wanted the legislature to try to turn Maryland's sixth district, which is out in the western part of the state, a pretty red area bordering West Virginia. He wanted to turn that district, which had for about 20 years been very safely Republican, to the Democratic Party. Um, so, Brian, I know your brief does not really you know, sort of agnostic as to when exactly the court should declare a constitutional violation. But in, in your view, do these amount to um, impermissible uh, line drawing that violates the Constitution? I think that they do. It depends on the baseline you're looking at. And we talked about that earlier. Is the baseline proportional representation? But that's not your only option. The other option is to look at maps that are drawn using principles other than and look at all the different possibilities. And then look at the map that the legislature actually drew and and compare that to all the different other possibilities. And if it's the most partisan possible map uh, of all the possibilities, then that's a pretty solid indication that it is pernicious both in intent and effect, and that there is a real dilution of voting power in those districts. So yes, I I, I do think the map in, in North Carolina meets that standard where you have both intent and a map that is all, all the way out at an extreme as compared with all of the other possible maps that could have been drawn with principles other than partisanship. One point I think that was raised by Justice Alito in the North Carolina case was that um, you know computers tend to generate these maps and, and computers can draw tens of thousands of, of different uh, 
maps that could be used. And I think he said in the example of North Carolina, there was 25,000 maps drawn. And of, right. you know, there, there could still, if you took a situation where politics was not considered, of those 25,000, maybe 100 would be ones that would spit out and give you a 10-3 split in favor of Republicans. So that's taking no politics into consideration. Is the idea or sort of the counter to that that those are very outlier maps? And so um, you, any, any right-thinking organization would look towards the middle of, of a bell curve and, and, drawing, and drawing the electoral maps. Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. I, there, he said there were 162 other maps that would have been equally – partisan and, and what is to prevent the legislature from choosing those, the, the, I, I, I suppose the answer is the same. Uh, you know, the, all, all 162 of them are outliers. I don't know if the implication of his question was that how can you say the map they chose was an outlier when there are 162 others? Well, that number 162 is not very impressive when you compare it against the 25,000 possibilities. And that, But it does point to the I think the reason why the parties keep saying that intent is important and can you infer intent from the existence of an outlier? Uh, that might be a good start. There are also statements on the record. Courts have not shied away from determining intent in other circumstances. And Michael Kimberly had an interesting point. Uh, he argued against the state of Maryland, uh, just saying, if there is this inference that the, the legislature has sought to punish voters based on their uh, membership in a political party, can they come forward with a justification for the map they've drawn? And can they point to anything other than partisanship for the map they've drawn? And if they can, that would, that would solve the problem. And, I, and for, for me, that was reassuring. I, and I, I, I hope it was reassuring for the justices as well. One other point that seems reassuring to me, and I'd be curious if you guys agree, is that these tandem cases um, represent, you know, sort of bad behavior by the opposite political parties, presenting the court with an opportunity to weigh in here and say partisan gerrymandering is bad and equally disadvantage the two parties. You know, Maryland, the Democrats tried to redraw the district and the North Carolina as Republicans. Do you think, you know, Brian and Benfield feel free to weigh in that that um, creates a, a greater opportunity, a greater likelihood that the court will finally wade into this problem? No question that it does. We we know that Chief Justice Roberts is very concerned about this point, and probably all of the justices are concerned about it because the the computer simulation and the twenty five thousand maps that we just talked about and and neutral redistricting principles are not easy to understand. It it takes a a little bit of study to to think about how how is it that the computer drew drew those maps and on what basis and and how is it that we're comparing the outlier to the other maps. Uh, and the Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice asked, will the, will the ordinary man on the street be able to understand all that, or, or will he just take a shortcut and say, looks like the court wanted to favor one political party over the other? Uh, very concerned about that. And so this, this uh, set of two cases proceeding at the same time is, is a special opportunity for the court to rule uh, on both of them and uh, avoid the appearance that it's ruling in one political party or or another. Yeah, and if I could just add, when you one of the difficult things here, and Brian, this is something you suggested earlier, is that, you know, you characterize this as bad behavior. The difficult thing is that 
these legislatures will find it very difficult to not draw maps that benefit their own party. And I know that's a broad statement. I'm not uh, trying to attribute motives to anyone specifically, but if you have a system in which political actors are elected and their political control is tied up with how their district is drawn and they also have authority to draw that district Putting aside the partisan motivations, every every uh, elected official has an incentive to have a district drawn in a way that will keep them in the seat, whether they intend to or not. And so the, what the California Redistricting Commission did, the Citizens Redistricting Commission, and what a lot of these other commissions do by removing it from the process is it doesn't it, – it takes away from these politicians even the temptation to try to do so. And so it's not necessarily a situation like uh, was presented in these uh, re- the recent cases pending before the court, but anyone who is sitting in that chair looking at their district, trying to figure out how to draw the district, is at least going to be tempted to draw a district that would benefit them. And so by creating some criteria, by creating a system that either tells them that that cannot be considered or by taking that power away from them and uh, giving it to someone else who has their own criteria for drawing the district, it just removes the temptation and the appearance that this might have been done. So even in a situation where a legislator hasn't taken the affirmative action to preserve their own seat, this way the uh, people know that it hasn't been done and that the person who's been elected is is in a district that they didn't pick themselves, that they're not picking their voters, that the voters are picking them. Yeah. I mean, that sort of gets at just the insolubility of this problem that uh, Justice Kagan mentioned that, you know, even if the court changes the rule and says you can't factor politics into map drawing, it won't change the incentives, uh, assuming that legislators are still the parties that, that draw the maps, that politicians are still drawing the maps. And in fact, it might make it a harder problem to solve because you know, one reason these cases are so easy, Justin Kagan said, is because the actors on the ground felt free to say, yeah, we're doing this for partisan reasons because they thought it was legal. And to this point, you know, it, it has been. Um, so if the court says you can't factor in politics, her worry was, well, how would you ever prove that anyone was doing it because they would know, okay, we're not going to say um, out loud that we're trying to draw a 10 to 3 map. We're just going to maybe run some nonpartisan computer program until we get uh, a map that gives us a 10 to 3 um, uh, breakdown. So, you know, Brian, what what about that problem that if you say politics can't be factored in, how the heck are we going to go about proving that politics have been unduly factored in in future cases? I, I think that concern is overstated. If the goal for the map drawers is to draw the most partisan possible map, at some point along the line, someone will have have to have asked for that or talked about it. There ought to be evidence somewhere. And if there's, there's no evidence at all, and you're just making your determination based on the map itself, then, then maybe you're in a situation where the map is fine. Uh, I, I think that intent does play a role and that there will be opportunities to infer intent uh, and and determine intent based not just on the map but on what what uh, what the map drawers have said. 
Um, I, you know, there, there are concerns about discovery in those cases, and I understand that. But uh, if, it, if it's just the map and you're, you're, you're looking at an, an effects-based test only, I, I think it will be hard, and the court is concerned about that. Um, I, I think another answer to that, and so one, I'm saying there probably will continue to be evidence, even when people are trying to hide their conduct. I mean, people try to hide criminal conduct, and yet there still is sometimes evidence of it. Um, but the other answer the the response to Justice Kagan's question was that uh, once the court announces its rule, uh, legislators will follow it. Uh, you know, so that you know you can't assume that everyone will immediately go underground. Uh, the better assumption is the court's decision will have some effect, and a positive one at that. Yeah, it was uh, encouraging to hear the court articulate that uh, they at least hope and perhaps expect some good faith action on the part of actors on the ground in, in adherence with their, their rulings. Um, just a, one other question sort of about the different constitutional avenues that the court could get to to reach a, um, a decision that the actions here violate the Constitution. We have a First Amendment claim and an equal protection claim. The First Amendment one raised in the Maryland case seemed to get the most attention um, from the Chief Justice who you know said pretty candidly, look, what Maryland does here is target voters based on their political speech. They're voting for the Republican Party and then disfavor them, disadvantage them. That seems like a pretty darn clear violation of um, the First Amendment, prescribing the government from disadvantaging folks based on you know what they've said and their political speech. So I guess, Brian, do you think there's a greater chance with one constitutional claim or the other? Do you have thoughts on, on that? I, I I don't have a prediction about which claim is more likely to succeed. If we're just looking at precedent, the precedent is pushing the parties in the direction of the First Amendment, because the statements in the past about proportional representation uh, suggest that the court is, is not interested in, in using that as a principle. And, and that's what was so interesting about Justice Kavanaugh returning to it today. Uh, if, if you're just looking at a blank slate and asking, what is a better fit, in, in my view, it's an equal protection claim and not a First Amendment claim. But w we operate in a world of precedent, and I, I think that explains the interest in the First Amendment from the in the Maryland case. Okay, just a couple of last ones. You know, um, Ben, we've spoken about uh, the, the nonpartisan maps that the, the California Commission has drawn and the good work that you've described. Um, to any extent, do you worry that uh, the example of California's commission here um, undercuts the need for the Supreme Court to weigh in? It came up a lot at argument, mostly from Justice Gorsuch, that uh, there are other avenues, there are other branches of government, there are citizen initiatives that can fix political gerrymandering. You know, see the example of California. Um, you know, do you think, to any extent, it's is possible that uh, the Citizens for Districting Commission just presents that clear example that Gorsuch is trying to? to put forth that uh, the court should stay out of it and let the people decide. Yeah, um, you know, that is frankly concerning. Um, I, I think it's more concerning because you know, California has a ballot initiative process that allows its citizens to amend its constitution and allows it to set rules that its legislature must follow. Not every state does that. And so, you know, sitting here today, if the uh, Supreme Court said that uh, partisan uh, partisan motivations must be eradicated from the drawing of congressional districts, that 
probably wouldn't affect California so much because they have the Citizens Redistricting Commission. Other states, however, don't necessarily have that same process, and they're subject to the uh, desires of the legislature or desires of whatever process, whatever political process that state has for setting the uh, congressional districts. The fact that California has shown a way to take the political motivations of drawing districts out of the process, you know, it should not affect whether that process would violate these core uh, core constitutional rights of people. And to the extent that the justices think that this is an issue that the states can resolve, and it's an issue that does not require the Constitution to step in, you know, to the as far as I can disagree, um, the states are going to have to try to figure out how to do it. And states that can do it, like California and Florida, can do it, but other states cannot. And so the you know the people who turn to the federal courts tend to be ones that don't have the same process in their states to require their legislatures to draw the districts in a different way. Now, if that's going to be compelling enough to to have the court pass on it and to have the court decide that this is not something that they think uh, the Constitution weighs in on at all, that's, that's not something I can control. That's not something we can control. But I don't think that the fact that California can do this and has taken action to do this should have a bearing on whether this... Uh, whether the partisan drawing of districts is a constitutional issue. Right. It's just a strange question, I think, from Justice Gorsuch to suggest that because some states can remedy the problem, that means there's no federal right in other states. It would be like in the Heller case, which was involved the District of Columbia and some of its gun regulations, for the court to say, well, we're just not going to get involved because other states have different gun regulations. So to me, it just reflects a basic hostility to the idea of getting involved under any circumstances, and he's looking for a way out. Yeah, yeah I, thought the, I thought the same. Then maybe just one last one. Um, Brenna had, would have you start, and Ben, feel free also to, to weigh in. What do you expect the court to come down with? This seems like probably the maybe most um, attention-grabbing case of the term, so folks will be awaiting it in June. It seemed like maybe more than... People might have thought the chief and potentially also Justice Kavanaugh seemed at least interested in trying to, to solve this riddle once and for all to figure out a way forward on partisan gerrymandering. Uh, Brian, did you feel similarly? What, what are your thoughts? I, I did. I was feeling so encouraged by all of Justice Kavanaugh's questions and also just not being that familiar with his, his style at oral argument, wondering whether they were sincere questions or trick questions. And then at the very end, he said, well, our precedent does indicate that we cannot use a proportional representation test. And I, I didn't know if he meant proportional representation as, as, a, as a test or as a baseline operating in the background from which we measure deviation. But his questions were not at all hostile. We can say, I, I can say at least uh, uh, that much. So, so there's some hope. And as for the Chief Justice, I, I thought he was pretty circumspect but by no means was hostile in the same way that Justices Alito and Gorsuch were. Yeah, and, and 
I also think that the issue of voting rights and voting privileges has been in the news so much recently, and I would be surprised if the Supreme Court did not want to weigh in as a as a body onto into these issues one way or the other. So you know, I'm not in the place of speculating what's going to happen, what that decision is, but. I would be surprised if they pass on the issue again. Okay. Well, we'll find out soon enough. It'll be very interesting to see. Um, Brian Sutherland from Reed Smith, thanks for being on the show. And Ben Flegel, thanks for being here as well. Appreciate it. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Okay. That's our show for March 29th, 2019, the Partisan Gerrymandering Edition. Hope you enjoyed it. Let me thank one more time both of my guests, Brian Sutherland and Ben Flegel from Reed Smith LLP. Also, thank you for tuning in. It is tremendously appreciated. Don't forget both that CLE credit is easily available for listeners of the podcast and can be found on our site at dailyjournal.com. When you go there, just find this podcast in our podcast library. Find a link to a very short true-false test, tender a nominal and competitive fee, and one whole hour of CLE credit can be yours. Also, don't forget to look for us in iTunes and on the podcast app by searching for Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal. Finding us there and subscribing, rating, reviewing us is all tremendously appreciated. Help spread word of the show and also let us know what we could be doing better. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.